Hello and welcome back. Thanks for joining us today. It's the Three Things Podcast, going strong in early 2019. Thanks for coming back and thanks for caring. I'm really glad you guys are here today. Um, got some uh, what I think to be pretty um, profound thoughts today. As always, not all of them, in fact most of them, don't come from me. Um, I I think I've found myself as more of an aggregator of everybody else's thoughts than of an originator of my own. Um, I do think there's some of this stuff today that has come out of my life, but the truth is most of this is um, is just gleaned from people who have come before us. And um, if you've listened to the podcast before, you know that I'm a big believer in evolution. Now, hang on, hang on, those of you who are scared of the word. I mean, we have evolved and we should evolve. As we move forward through history, humans should get better. And the way we get better is learning from the people who have come before us and adding to what they have done and what they have said and what they have thought and what they have believed, things that um, move the ball forward. And so what you're going to hear today is, is no exception to that. Um, it's a big part of my life right now. I'm at the age, I think, um, I think everybody deals with this, but I'm at the age where I'm making some big life decisions about what I believe about our topic today and how I'm going to deal with it in my life. So you've already seen the title. Today is Three Things About Power. Um, and man, I, I hope that you tuned in, even if you're kind of feeling like, well, this doesn't pertain to me because I have no power. <laughs> I want to convince you today that that's not true. No matter who you work for, no matter where you find yourself in life, you have some power. And there are some really important lessons that we can learn um, about this power. The older I get, the more I notice like strange social phenomenons in life. We just, uh, it's early in 2019 here, and here in Indiana, we just are experiencing, in fact, I am snowed in today, which is one of my favorite things to be out here in the log cabin out in the middle of Indiana, Um, snowed in almost like entirely, can't hardly get out of our driveway today, and there's something fun about that, there's something cool about that, but what what I've found about being snowed in in these big winter storms, at least here in southern Indiana, is there is this weird thing that happens in the weeks before it, where people pretend that they're dreading (laughs) <laughs> the the coming snow, but the truth is they can't wait. And whether it's the fact that it's a anomaly in their normal day-to-day life and they're looking forward to that, or whether they really do want an excuse to stay home from work and school and church and all of those things, whatever it is, there is this strange social phenomenon around disasters or around these natural uh, storms that are coming. Um, man, people make a run to the grocery store and they they start posting on social media, the world is ending and all of these things. And there are some other social phenomenons um, that have started to catch my interest as well. Especially one of them um, is this concept of power. Um, And the way I've noticed it most recently is because I'm so desperately in love with my kids. And so, um, I don't know, everything kind of in me is... um, maybe even in an unhealthy way at times, uh, their happiness sort of gets tied to mine. And you've heard me talk about that before. That's not a healthy thing. Um, but at times I, I'm really am affected by how they, they're being dealt with at school. And, and often, especially my son Reese, um, is learning 
um, what it means to experience power, both his own and kids his age who have their own power leveraged against him. And, you know, when I was a kid, I remember, and some of you may even still use this phrase, the idea of a pecking order, you know, amongst kids and amongst people. And I think they literally mean amongst chickens. Apparently, like this is a chicken phenomenon too. Um, Anything that has a heartbeat has this sense of like power and order. And some people are in better and have more power than others and can wield it in different ways. So very strange um, social phenomenon, especially if you care deeply about people who have been treated poorly because of power. And you kind of have to watch from the sidelines a little bit. It starts with like bullies um, and it grows up. And then, you know, you know this, then there are bullies that never actually become adults. They, they get older, but they never grow up. And so they end up kind of using their power at work and they end up still being bullies. Um, sometimes they, they use their power for their own control or to make them feel, feel better about themselves or to somehow make fun of people. Even, even as they grow older, if you work at a local small business, um, if you, if you are, um, an owner of a restaurant in your town, uh, this power thing has incredible, um, implications for the people that you spend time with on a regular basis. It can ruin lives um, and it can ruin work cultures. If you work as like an elected official at a level where you, the decisions that you are making and the power that you have affects millions of people, the way you see power can actually start to shape a culture. And so you may think of power as something that someone else has politicians, law enforcement, those kinds of things. But what I'd like to convince you today is that right now, today, you have power that you may not even realize you have. Um, Every time you tell your kids they can't have dessert until they finish their meatloaf, you're exercising power. Every time you withhold a tip from a slow waitress, (laughs) you're exercising power. And, And I'd like to convince you today that What you do with every little bit of power that you have matters. What you do with power can literally today begin to make the world a little bit better or a little bit worse. I really believe that. You know, we talk about world changing. We talk about one person can change the world. We talk about all these different things. And sometimes it feels a little trite. Sometimes it feels a little overblown, a little grandiose. The truth is, when it comes to this conversation about power, this may be the most, um, the quickest way to influence a culture. And I, I would like to kind of um, share with you how I believe that actually happened a couple thousand years ago today. But in our three things about power, um, I just want to jump right into those three things today. And I'd like for you to, as always, hold loosely um, some of the things that you believe about power. Um, and um, just bear with me a little bit as we go through this. First, the first thing about power is this, that power is one of the most desperate human pursuits. Now, you may not think of it that way, that you're pursuing power. You may not um, often acknowledge that power is one of the most desperate human pursuits. But you know what I mean about desperate human pursuits? It's like love, sex, money, popularity, power, all these things that, that people will desperately pursue in life. Sometimes to the point where it blinds them 
for their own morality or blinds them from the decisions they're making and what it's making them become. And they often, whenever they finally get whatever they think they want, love, sex, money, popularity, power, they get it and they realize I may have exactly what I thought I wanted, but now that I have it, I realize that it has taken me to a place I wouldn't have ever chosen. It has caused me to become a person that I would have not wanted to be. Um, Often, you know, it's easy to think of these desperate human pursuits like sex where someone has an affair and they feel like it's the best thing in the world. What they're after is, you know, this affair is the best thing in the world and that woman or that man is the best thing they could possibly have. And then once they they go ahead and, and, and act on that, that pursuit, they finally get it and they realize I've destroyed something and I've become something I didn't want to be. Um, and it's not just a matter of morality. It's a matter that it's somehow you were blinded by this pursuit. And, and power is one of those pursuits. Often, I think power could be one of the most fatal of those pursuits. But we don't think about it in the same way that we think about love, sex, money. Um, and so what ends up happening is we often just begin to... Um, accidentally wield this power in unhealthy ways. Um, maybe you get more people underneath you at work. You know that that phrase? It's a terrible phrase, isn't it? How many people can I get under me at work? You know, Because somehow the more people that are under, if you could see my hands, I'm air quoting, the more people that are under me right now give me some sense that I have power, air quotes again, over them. And somehow that makes me more useful to the company or more important as a human, whatever it is. That's a phrase we use. Um, We think of politicians um, and sometimes they get addicted to this power. You know what I mean? Like they become governor because people love them and they truly love their community and they try to do good things. And then all of a sudden they get noticed at a higher level. And the next thing you know, they have a state um, position. And the next thing you know, they've got attention at the government level. And then before you know it, they they don't care at all about the community that they came from. And they almost forgot where they came from because power can be addicting and you can never have enough at some level. One of the ways you can prove this in in the corporate world which I'm in and I see a lot of is, um, you know, people love to put titles after their name. And the if it starts with a C, if it's CEO, CFO, COO, CCC, CLL, whatever it is, you can make up a bunch of stuff as long as it begins with chief, right? I mean, doesn't that just sound primitive? I mean, if, if you really if you really step away from what we're doing in the corporate world, if you're in the corporate world right now and your goal is to become CE something, chief executive something, there is this primitive sense that we are still trying to be chiefs. We're still trying to work our way up with power. And we really haven't come as far often as we think we have. And if you're not in the corporate world today, maybe you're just a parent. And and today you maybe need to realize that saying things like, as long as you're under my roof, or no son of mine, dot, 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 those kinds of things are a, a use and a grasp for power. Have you ever been to a restaurant? This happens to me all the time, where I, I meet a friend at a restaurant, and they're nice, and they're good people, and they're normal humans, and we start to laugh and talk and have a story, and then all of a sudden, 
the server brings us food that was just a little bit off from what they ordered and they become a different person. It's like in that moment, they want to explain to the server how they're supposed to serve. They want call the cook out and tell, let me tell them how to cook my food. And, and, and then they look at you once the server walks away, they often look at you with this eye roll of like, can you believe that we have to put up with this inferior person who is serving us? And, and to be honest, um, I'm sure I've done it in my life too, but the older I get, the more I just, I recognize it and I see it. Like, do, do I want to be associated with that kind of power. And you can tell it's often someone who doesn't have power elsewhere that they wish they had. And so when they get it, they use it, man. Have you ever had a, heard a man or a woman yell at their kids? I, it happens in public all the time. We're at a movie theater recently. I hear this man yelling at his kids. And it's not for them to behave or it's not for them to do something that's in their best interest. It's for this man to make known that he's in charge. Like there's no other point to his yelling at that point than for the kids to understand that they are inferior to this person, which to me, it doesn't say anything about the kids. It says something about this person that they desperately need power and they're not getting it anywhere else. So they have to, they have to scare children in order to get what they want. This is what I mean about a desperation. This is a desperate human pursuit in many people. And desperation leads you to places you would have never imagined you would end up. So the first of the three things about power is that power is one of the most desperate human pursuits. And if we can acknowledge that, that it is within us to accidentally uh, drift into a person that we aren't because of the pursuit of this power, I think that's the first step in a healthy view of power. Second of the three things is that There isn't necessarily a connection between power and influence. In fact, in my life, I would say more often than not, the most powerful people in my life, the ones who have, um, who have created their own space and power in my life and have, have become superior to me in one way or the other are often the people who have influenced me the least in terms of the way I grow and the way I get better and how I do things and, and the leadership. So, so power doesn't equal leadership. And you know that. You already know that. Many of us know that um, you know, no matter who the president is and whether or not you like them, how much influence do they really have in your life on a daily basis? They don't know your name. They don't know where you live. And often they make a statement that makes you roll your eyes like it because you realize you are so far from me, Right? And when it comes to this power, often the more power you get, if you don't keep it in check, the less influence you actually have. If you're a boss and you just keep grabbing power and you keep reminding your the people that are under you, air quotes again, that you have power and they don't, then what you're doing is you're separating yourself from them. You're not leading them. You're not influencing them. You're not moving them towards something. You're separating yourself from them, which is actually the antithesis of what you think you're doing in that moment. See, it's possible to have all of the power and none of the influence. It is possible to have C. E something after your name and for everyone to think of you as just another employee. It is possible to think you're leading when you're not because that pursuit of power will cause you to see yourself bigger than you are. Do you want your kids growing up knowing you're in charge or 
Do you want them to be good humans? Like, what's, what's the point of you being in charge of your home? What's the point of you having power in your house? You being able to ground them, being able to set the bedtime, being able to make them eat their vegetables before they get the dessert. What is the point of all of that? Is it so that someone knows you're in charge? Because if it is, then what you're doing is the same thing the CEO is doing in his office. You are separating yourself from the very people you think you're leading. And this is where a lot of frustration comes in with parenting, where parents just, they think they want to get their kids to do something. And so they, they yield their power over, they wield their power over and over and over again. And they're surprised that their kids don't move, that maybe their kids comply, but they don't change. And it's because they have used power in a way that is unhealthy. Would you rather your employees comply out of fear or contribute out of passion and connection? Would you rather your congregation tithe out of obligation and fear or give out of gratitude and respect and excitement and passion? So the question with this second thing today about power is, how are you using your power? Are you using your power for influence or to convince someone that you're in charge? The third thing I want to talk about today when it comes to power is that power exposes your heart and your motives. See, if somebody, if somebody knows you long enough and if somebody is underneath your power long enough, they can answer that question I just asked. That question about whether or not you want power because you just want to convince someone you're in charge or whether or not you actually want to lead them to something good. Some, we can answer that, right? Those of us who have been under the authority of someone who has power of us, they can answer the question because power exposes your heart and it exposes your motives. Here's how Abraham Lincoln said it. You knew I'd have a quote in here. I always do. Abraham Lincoln said this, Nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Man, this comes from a president who had all the power and who was thought of as, as a man with a lot of character. And his experience was that power exposes you. It tests your character. So today, if you're listening to this and you're a business, you're in business, you're somehow in the corporate world and you are reaching for power, you need to know that with that power comes exposure. And if you, there's nothing wrong with getting power. There's nothing wrong with pursuing power. But you need to know that as you pursue it, you need to know that pay attention and the people around you are paying attention to the fact that when you get that power, we're going to see the real you. What you do with the power exposes your character. Man, I love that. Nearly all men can stand adversity. But if you want to test a man's character, give him power. So this happens in good ways and this happens in bad ways. I've got friends that um, I spent a lot of time working with a church um, who had a lot of drug addiction issues. And um, I would meet these guys who had been addicted their whole life and had been imposed upon. They thought they, you know, the, the interesting thing was they had no power in their life. Their dad maybe had beat them. Um, men and women who um, had worked really awful jobs in their life where they, the, their bosses had just, had just used them, you know, and, and done the same thing their family had done to them and just used them to, to feel more powerful. And so they come to a place in their life 
where they move to drugs and then they feel like they need to be tough. Have you met people like this? At first it used to annoy me. And then the more I got to know the heart of these people, the more I got to see that their, their tough exterior that I'm going to beat you up and I'm going to kick you out and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that, that it comes from this place where it's the last thing they have. The last uh, grasp for power is just, I'm going to beat you up. I'm stronger than you. I'm bigger than you. I'm tougher than you. And here's what happens often. And you can test a person's character by this. Maybe it's not under the best circumstances, but often they'll, they'll become a father or a mother. And all of a sudden they have power. And in that moment, I can't, I can't explain why, but it seems like the people who have been beaten down the most by powerful people in their life, when they have the power over this little baby, they become soft. And I mean soft in a good way. I mean yielding their power, wielding their power to do something different. Wielding their power to raise a child differently than they were raised. Wielding their power to influence a human Instead of just prove they're in charge. Now, you know that sometimes that goes the wrong way and they end up treating their child the same way their dad treated them. But I started seeing if we, if I could model for them somehow as the preacher in this church, as the leader in this church, as someone that they respected and thought of as a spiritual person, which in my life, a lot of times felt humorous to me that they felt like I was closer to God than they were. But in that moment, I realized I have an opportunity to share with them a different way to think about power. And, and it reminds me of the story um, of a story of the life of Jesus. Um, you know, I was going there. I always do. Um, no matter what you believe about Jesus, you cannot deny that his presence on earth changed some things. Whether you believe he was God or not, um, man, the way he dealt with the power that he had was different. And it began, began to change the way people talked about power. And then there, there's a group of us that are trying to follow Jesus. And, and what I mean by following Jesus is that it is not like this ethereal, like, um, wear a rubber band around my wrist and, you know, and march around the courthouse. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Jesus. When he was here, he laid down an upside down way of doing life that many of us have decided we want to align our lives to. Um, I know, I know people that are following Jesus who don't necessarily believe that he was divine, that just want to do life like he did because living life upside down like that seems like the right thing. And, and so Jesus had this upside down way of viewing things. And the story I want to talk about today is at the end of Jesus's life. He's 33 years old. Um, now if you've been around church um, take this out of the land of flannel graph and, you know, cartoons and make this real because it was, he's 33 years old. And at that time, the average life expectancy in the world was around 35. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus was an, an old man. The average life expectancy thing is a little bit weird because it, there was so much infant mortality. And if you live to be 10 years old, there was a good chance you would probably live to be 50 or 60, but a lot of children died at this time in history. And so the life expectancy was, was much lower. Now, the thing is though, Jesus being a 33 year old man, wasn't like a 33 year old man today. We think of 33 as just beginning, you know, we think of 33 as just, um, you know, starting out young family, whatever. Jesus was wise. He was thought of as a grown up. 
He was thought of as someone who had been through a lot of things and seen a lot of things. You know, the, the t- this point in life was hard. Man, if, you're, if, if you listen to these stories about Jesus, don't put him in the mall in your town. Don't put him in a nine-to-five job and you know, watching binge-watching Netflix in the evenings as he gets sleepy and going to bed like we do. This was a uh, fight for survival. This was a time in history where um, even more than today, people believe that the way to peace was war. This was a time in history where you did whatever you could to survive, and it was a hard life. And any power you could get, any power you could get, if you were born with an abnormally big body, you know, you were just bigger than everybody else, you would use that. You would put yourself out as tough and as a warrior, and people would be scared of you, and you would use that to provide for your family and to get what you needed to get out of life and to protect the people around you. If you were abnormally smart, you might become a tax collector. And you might um, figure out how to swindle money from people because you needed to live and you needed to protect your family. So we like the good guys and bad guys that time in history. But the truth is these are people trying to survive. And when Jesus is at the end of his life, he's with a whole group of people who are just trying to survive. And 12 of them specifically who have been following him closely realized that there was something different about the way Jesus was living that they were addicted to. They couldn't get past some of the things Jesus had said, and yeah, some of the things he had done around. And so the story starts with Jesus saying, hey guys, I want to have dinner, which is, which is an interesting thing to do. They did it all the time, especially those you love the most you would eat with. And Jesus says, I want to meet in Jerusalem and I want to have dinner. Jesus um, seems to know that there's something different about this dinner, that it may be his last or that it's definitely at the end of his life. The rest of the disciples wouldn't have understood that completely. Um, but he, he talks to two of them, Peter and John, and he says, hey, I want to have this dinner, invite the guys. And Peter and John say, where should we do this? Now, they they choose this room that we refer to as the upper room, which is you can go visit it today or what they believe um, is the upper room today. The tradition is um, that this upper room is in Jerusalem near Mount Zion. Um, it is a pretty simple room um, in a in a building where people would have lived. Um, this would sort of be a guest room. And apparently there was someone, probably a, a high-ranking official, um, probably not Jewish um, necessarily, which is a whole other story, um, who who decided that they wanted to do life like Jesus. And maybe they were a little scared to come out of their shell. Maybe there were some political implications of them following Jesus, but they provided for Jesus in one way or the other and for his disciples. And this upper room was a place where the disciples were known to have gathered on many occasions. In fact, uh, the tradition is that this is where the disciples stayed anytime they were in Jerusalem. So this guy had kind of given them a room, probably under the table a little bit and probably without making anyone else aware of it because there were implications of, of being um, associated with this group of, of revolutionaries. 
And so this is a place they'd stayed and they were familiar with. But Jesus says, they said, well, well, how will we know, you know, which room? And, and Peter and John said, how will we know, you know, how to get the arrangements going? And it's not just about where we're meeting, but it's also about what the arrangements look like. And Jesus just says this really cloaked thing, which is really interesting. It's almost like a James Bond story. He says, hey, you're going to meet a guy carrying a water jar. Which there's got, I mean, that sounds like a pretty common thing, but most of the women were the ones carrying the water. Most of women at this point would have carried the water. And so seeing a man carrying a water, carrying water jar would have been a little bit different. He would have carried it on his head or on his shoulder. And that would have been something that would have stood out to these guys. And he said, when you see this guy, which I, I think based on my research, that this is the guy that probably owned the upper room, he's going to help you with the details for this event. Now, here's some things you need to know. I know I'm going into detail with this, but all this is really important. Here's some things you need to know about this dinner. One is that it is in this upper room where the the disciples would have been familiar with it. They would have been there before. um, And they, they would have been excited probably um, for the chance to be together, for the chance to to eat together um, and to be sort of um, hidden from um, the view of anyone who might hurt them. So this was a safe place. It was a good place. But part of the preparation for this, if you were going to prepare a party like this or a dinner like this, you'd have to do a few things. Obviously, you'd have to find food. And when you're talking about 12, 13 people, um, you're talking about a group of people, men, who were strong, big, walked a lot, needed to burn a lot of calories, and there was a lot of food to cook. So there would have been food provided, a lot of food, and that would have taken some time and energy and either some slaves or um, a, a staff of a house to cook this food. So you've got that. Then you've got wine. And whatever you believe about alcohol, I'm not here to talk to you about that. But this was not grape juice. This was not made by Welch's. This was wine. And it was probably more strong than what our wine is off the shelf today. It was because there were virtually no regulations on what proof this wine was. Nobody really knew. And so somebody had to provide the wine. It was expensive and it was thought of as a, you know, a a part of every dinner and a part of every um, party. And so there was a lot of money to be spent here and there was a lot of preparation to be done here. A lot of wine, the table had to be set. Now, when you think about the table, you often see um, maybe a picture of the last supper, um, a painting of the last supper where you see the guys spread out on what we consider to be our Thanksgiving table, you know, this long table. That's really not what it would have looked like. It would have been on the floor um, and they would have reclined at it. They would have kind of put their uh, they would have kind of sat down. The table would be elevated, maybe six eight, six inches to a foot, um, just enough maybe for them to get their knees under it a little bit. But they could lean back on one arm or the other and sit, kind of lay, recline around the table and eat. So all of the table had to be set. All of the space had to be right, had to be cleaned. You know what happens when you have people over, right? All of that has to be done. But there was one thing that has to be done at a party or a a dinner like this that you don't do when you host a party. <laughs> there has to be someone there to wash the guests' feet. All right? There has to be somebody that when you walk in, before you step past the threshold, this would be right when you walk in the door, before you step into the room where all the food is. Now, remember, the food is on basically on the floor. 
This is not a table that's two and a half, three feet off the ground. This is a table that's basically on the floor. And you've got people who have been walking for sometimes miles and miles and miles. And whether even if they just came from the local bath where they were just clean, going from the bath to the upper room would have made their feet filthy and dirty. And so in order to, to have a good party where there's not a lot of smelly feet and dirt next to the food, the tradition was in every good party, at every good meal, someone has to wash the feet. Now, in this culture, it was obvious who that would be. In this culture, every time when somebody's feet was washed, it was a slave that washed the feet or somebody who was a low, low, low down person on a list somewhere who maybe if they got paid, they got enough expenses to eat and live. But never would this be someone you knew the name of. Very rarely would this be someone that you would look eye to eye with, that you would see face to face. You know, we do this all over our world right now. Today, you'll go to a gas station. And if you don't go to the pump and just pay at the pump and not see any humans, you'll walk inside, you'll pay somebody that you don't even look in the eye. And you may you know, just try to be nice and say, have a good day, but you don't mean it. You don't think about who they are. You don't care about who they are. You may go to a restaurant and find a way, uh, find a server who is in the same boat. You may go to Walmart or target today and someone somewhere will be serving. You will be doing something that's probably beneath your station in somewhere or the other, at least at the moment. So we're not too far from this, but This was such a cultural um, uh, normalcy that somebody had to plan for this. Well, it came time, and and we don't know exactly what happened, but I think I know. I think Jesus knew the person who owned the upper room. I don't think Jesus mentioned his name. I think he wanted to keep this man uh, incognito to save his family because I think he was probably um, someone who was rich and part of the government and probably someone who would have had a lot of repercussions for knowing and taking care of Jesus. And I think Jesus got word to him somehow and said, get the whole party ready and get a bowl of water and a towel ready, but don't provide a servant. I mean, think about this in real terms. I think Jesus knew ahead. And I think he was the only one besides the man who owned the upper room that knew that the party would be ready, the wine would be flowing, the food would be warm, the place would be clean, and the water would be cool, but there would be no one there to serve it. So the people get there. And my guess is they're already there at the upper room. The way we understand this, they're sort of already in the upper room. And they're probably annoyed at the fact that there was no servant there to wash my feet. You know, I'm saying that with like that, that cocky kind of valley girl, who's going to wash my feet, you know? And there's this sense of like, I'm not, I have power over somebody and they're not here. And Jesus walks in. And if you've been around church long enough, you know what happens. People start to say, who's going to wash our feet? And Jesus says, I am. And man, don't read this story and read past it. This is a moment in history where Jesus tells a group of people, and I believe the world, that power is not what you think it is. That there is another reason to use power that can change things. 
and he says, I'm going to wash your feet. And he takes a towel and he puts it over his shoulder. And then he would have had another towel that was wet inside the bowl. And he goes from stinky, gross, smelly foot to stinky, gross, smelly foot. And he does the job of a slave. He does the work of a minimum wage worker. Over and over, foot after foot, silence would have taken over the room. The smell of wine and the smell of warm food would have gone away with the moment of confusion until Jesus gets to a man named Peter who was the most powerful person in any room unless Jesus was there. Peter was strong. We often think of Peter as small, and he might have been, but he was strong, he was powerful, he was angry, he was fiery, he was verbally better than everybody else around him, except for probably Jesus. And he was used to the power. And when Jesus got to Peter, Peter said, No, you are not going to wash my feet. And in that moment, it, we often read it like Peter felt like Jesus was too good for Peter. That Jesus was too good to wash Peter's feet. But here's, here's what I believe was actually going on there. It was Peter saying, I'm too good. I'm too good to walk away from this room and have to change the way I think about power because the person who is more powerful than me served me. I'm too good for this moment. I don't want to have to serve. I don't want to have to wield my power. I don't want to have to take this thing that I'm so used to having and give it away. And Jesus says to him, Peter, very, very directly, if you don't accept me washing your feet, then you have no part of me. Isn't that an interesting way to say it? If you don't accept me washing your feet, you have no part of me. The original text is more like you have no part in what I'm doing and in who I am and in this whole thing. This whole thing we've been doing means nothing if you don't accept this from me. And so Peter says, and what I believe was probably a life-changing moment for him and everyone in the room, the, most, the second most powerful person in the room at that moment says, then wash everything. Then not just my feet, but wash every part of me. Because, man, I'm dirty. Because there's part of me that I hate. There's part of me that wants this power so much. There's part of me that, that will n- never become who I want to be if, if I hold on to this. So wash it. Wash all of it. Because I want to go where you're going. And to this day, to this day, I don't care if you're a preacher in your church. I don't care if you're a 35-year-old Sunday or 35-year tenured Sunday school teacher in your church. I don't care if you're a Bible college professor. If you aren't doing power this way, you aren't doing Jesus. If you aren't washing feet, if you don't take the power you have and give it away and use it to influence instead of prove that you're strong, then you have no part in following Jesus.
geez, I get emotional in this thing today. I think my emotion comes the same for the same reason it did in Peter. Because I got to tell you, I don't know if you feel like this, but there are moments where I want that power so bad. Where I'm at work and I just think, these people are all idiots if they just listen to me. <laughs> you know? Where I come in and I just want, Reese will say something and I just think, man, he doesn't realize I'm bigger, stronger. And, I'm, and there's this thing that wells up in me. And I don't want it. It's not who I am. It's not where I'm going. I want no part of that. Andy Stanley, who is one of my mentors, although he doesn't know it, about this scripture, he said, so what do you do? What do you do when you realize you're the most powerful person in the room? What do you do when the waitress shows up and the food's bad? What do you do when the when your son, your daughter does something you have the power to discipline them over? Not whether or not do you discipline them. Of course you discipline them. But in what vein and for what reason and how do you use your power? Is it so that they know you're in charge or is it so that somehow you can influence them by taking that thing that they know you possess and intentionally putting yourself beneath them in some way? Would you choose influence, peace, and grace over tyranny aggression, and judgment? Would you choose influence over domination? Would you choose them over you? Would you choose to wash instead of be washed? Would you choose to serve instead of be served? Would you choose to take the power that you have in whatever room you find yourself and influence instead of dominate. I believe this changed the world once. Leaders who lead this way lead better. Parents who parent this way parent better. Preachers who preach this way lead better. And you no matter what you do today, no matter what you believe about the man Jesus and what he did in that upper room and who he really was, the people that were around him thought of him as popular, intelligent, confident, the non-disputed leader of this group. Most, a lot of people around him thought he was supernatural, and he took all of that power, and he consistently put others before him, and he consistently put that power behind him. And used it to influence people. If you do it today, not only will it make your world better, it will. this will literally change the way people interact with each other in this world. And you can choose it today. The next hamburger you get without cheese on it when you ordered cheese. The next slow line at Target. The next uncleaned bedroom. The next botched project at work, they're all your opportunities to answer the question, what do you do when you realize you're the most powerful person in the room? It's your question today. Hit me hard. I hope it does you. And I hope today someone is influenced by the power you have over them. Thank you for listening. See you next time.